Hi, this is Sunny, and this is a Sunny Look at the Bible. So Revelation, first of all, it's Revelation, no S. Just, just to be clear, the book is called Revelation. It is considered the revelation of John. It's written by John in AD 95, AD meaning 95 years after Jesus' death. Now, people lived longer back then because uh, John, if he wrote it, 95 years after Jesus, uh, that's a long time, but he was the disciple that Jesus loved. In fact, many of you have heard me recently say I had this epiphany when we were in Israel on the southern steps of the temple, the temple on uh, Mount Moriah, basically the Temple Mount, there are original steps that Jesus would have walked. And then there's been some patchwork and some uh, fixing on the southern steps. But ultimately, the southern steps was the entrance to the temple that Jesus would have walked up twice a year as a young boy, as a man. And so when I sat on those steps and we were doing worship overlooking, which would, what would have been the city of David uh, while we've sat on the steps, Lisa Harper said, uh, John, the disciple Jesus loved, he's the one that of all the things he did in his life, he wrote John. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote John and he wrote first, second, and third John. And he wrote Revelation. And of all the things that he did, ultimately he was exiled to the island of Patmos. He was persecuted. Uh, he was martyred. Of all the things that he had happened and he knew was to come, his claim to fame was, I leaned on the chest of Jesus. Probably John would have been 13 years old. Uh, probably John, because at 12 or 13, you were following a rabbi that by that time. Probably John was following Jesus as his rabbi. And so it's not as awkward to think about John, a 12 or 13 year old, leaning on the chest of Jesus as D Jesus was you know, talking to his disciples and, and, you know, they were leaning against rocks as they traveled would have been a little bit more weird if you think of like a 40 year old man leaning on Jesus chest. So John, his most important thing to him was he was the man who leaned on the chest of Jesus. So it's so cool that Jesus would allow this man to be the one to write the final book of the Bible. Okay, this is a book that John obviously didn't have edited. So John had no help. He is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And we'll talk about uh, that Isle, basically same thing as Island. And uh, he would have not had someone to help him translate and like be a scribe, like he would have had for John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So if the writing seems different, which the Hebrew and Greek translators first, well, not Hebrew, but Greek translators for sure would have thought, I don't know, like there's speculation, like was it a different John? Um, because he wrote differently. But here's the thing, in the other books of the Bible, he had the help and he was a Jewish man. He was not an original Greek speaker. So he didn't write like Greeks could, like if I were to write something in Gaelic for Irish people, I would probably write differently than someone who's an originally speaking Gaelic speaker because it's new to me. And so, but it's pretty clear he was the one that wrote this. If it was another man named John, 
who wrote this, he would have been a Jewish guy too, because it's very clear it was written in a Jewish context by a Jewish person. Uh, the book's name, Revelation, has two meanings. And I would suggest getting your, I mean, obviously your Bible out right now, but I would suggest getting a notepad out because there are two meanings for the name Revelation, the reason this book was even named that. Number one is it is apocalyptic, apocalyptic. The Greek word apocalyptic, it's apocaleo, it's a different type of sounding word than, but basically in our translation, apocalyptic means two things, a type of Jewish literature that was familiar to John's readers, Jewish readers, like the Old Testament books, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Ezra. So throughout this, if you're like, I want more than what I'm getting right now in Revelation, look at your footnotes, listen to the things I'm telling you. And if you go back to the Old Testament books, it will even expand on the stuff that John just assumed everybody already knew because it was Jewish literature that his readers were very familiar with, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic also means that it is revealing symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history and its final outcome. Remember that God knows the beginning from the end. So apocalyptic means a heavenly perspective and it's history, yet it's the future. But it's because God's revealing this vision. So in God, in his mind, it's not just the future, it's the history. It's what will go down. A lot of, lot of uh, loaded meat there. The second thing that revelation means is a prophecy. And the definition of a prophecy is a word from God spoken by his people, usually to warn or to comfort. It sounds a lot like the Holy Spirit, right? To warn or to comfort. That's what we have present day. It's bringing the message of the traditional prophet prophets like Isaiah's prophecy to life. Again, John is referring to prophecies that have already been spoken in the Old Testament, which actually makes this even more exciting, but also makes it where it's less of a puzzle because we can just go back to the Old Testament. Okay, the Revelation, this whole book, is a circular letter to seven churches in the Southwest Asia Minor. They were under persecution and they were dealing with spiritual warfare. Characteristics of letters, because if the book is a letter, which Romans is a letter, uh, there's many books in the New Testament that they're letters that get turned into books. So I want to talk to you about letters. And of course, I'm setting up today a ton where we'll only get through chapter one of Revelation because it's too important that we get the context. Otherwise, we start reading the chapters and we're reading them literally out of context. So that's why we're going to go through a lot of introduction here. Characteristics of letters which this is what Revelation was, was a letter. You know who you're writing to when you write a letter. You don't have to give all the details, right? You know each other's backstory. If I write a letter to my friend and uh, my cousin across the country, I can refer to things that we both understand and I don't have to expand on those. Again, that's why Revelation, there's things that it's like, is that in code? Is that something I should know? Yeah, if you go back to some of the Old Testament books, Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezra, Isaiah, you start to get the context of this letter that he's writing to basically people who get it, who are Jewish, who are in a church, who are Gentiles that believe in Jesus. Number two characteristic of a letter is they're, they're written in a specific period of time. Think of the letter and the diary of Anne Frank. We, we have to know we're reading Anne Frank's diary, basically letters, in that time period. So the, the vernacular she uses makes sense. And if we want to know more about what she's talking about, we have to research what did that word mean? What is she talking about? 
So letters have a backstory. Let's dig even deeper. There's three styles of writing in the Bible. There's poetry, prose discourse, and narrative. And I'm going to go through each of these. A narrative is the most common used style of writing because stories are a large portion. And Sean uh, has talked about this in messages before. Uh, stories, or in the Bible, they're called parables. A parable means to throw alongside. So if someone's writing a letter or someone's writing poetry and they add a narrative or a whole book is a narrative, it's telling a story, uh, or it's full of parables, it's throwing alongside the lesson to give a story because it helps expand it. So let's go into each of these. So there's three styles. Even if he's writing a letter, sometimes he could write a letter and have some poetry within it. So three styles that biblical writers wrote in. The first one I said was poetry. It's one third of the Bible. It's metaphors. It forces you off the well-worn path in your head. Think about how we view the world. We view things through the mindset of what we've always done. Like we think how we were raised was 100% normal till we get married or we get around another family and we understand that's not normal, that part of my family. But we can, this is why people who don't break free of bad upbringings or parts of their upbringing that were uh, not healthy, they can defer back to that's how they're a spouse or that's how they're a parent because there's a well-worn path in our mind of this is normal, this is okay. What poetry or metaphors do is they force our brain off of the well-worn path of reason of, oh, I understand that. Oh, this is my context. Poetry makes your head expand because it's supposed to be a metaphor metaphor to take you out of your reasoning in your brain. So three types of poetry. I know this keeps breaking down further. We've got letters, then there's three kinds of writings in the Bible, then of poetry, the first one that's a third of the Bible, there's three types of poetry. Again, this is all going to help you in reading, not just Revelation, but all of the Bible. Okay, uh, three types of poetry. Songs, number one, songs. Number two, wisdom books. Uh, songs, the first one would be like Psalms. So when you read Psalms, you could be like, this is a lot of poetry and a song. It's a song. It's songs. Some are rhyming, some are not. Most poetry doesn't have to rhyme. Uh, number two type of poetry is wisdom books. Did you know the wisdom books like Proverbs? Because it's a reflection, uh, it's a reflection book, even though it gives us wisdom, it's actually made into poetry majority of the book of Proverbs. The third type of poetry is prophets, major and minor prophets. And the only reason that they're called major or minor, major prophets wrote thick books and minor prophets wrote thin books. Okay, second style of writing, prose discourse, is logical and reasoning that feels like news articles and essays. You're not going to see prose discourse a lot in Revelation. You'll see that more in uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it's giving like a news report on this just in, a baby born in a manger. And, you know, this just in, he rides in on a donkey and the people bow down. This, the the essay or the news writing of Jesus would be more like prose discourse. But also prose discourse is laws like Exodus, the book of Exodus, uh, Wisdom, again, back to Proverbs. Proverbs has logical reasoning. It's prose discourse. And third, letters like Romans and Revelation. Okay, now, narratives. They're the third style of writing. They're like a good movie. They're the history. They can be history, parable, or biography. So now we've looked at the three styles of writing of the Bible. What's 
good to note is that when you're reading a book of the Bible, you're not just probably going to read one style. You'll, you'll be in Proverbs and it'll suddenly go... And you'll go, where do we just go? Or like in Revelation, you're reading it and it sounds a bit like an essay. It sounds a bit more uh, narrative or it sounds a little bit more discourse and then it jumps into poetry. And the reason you have to know this is because then you know how to read that scripture. Uh, because a lot of people say, how can I know something is literal when it sounds so crazy? Well, the writers were doing this so that you would get a combination of of uh, learning because our brain needs to be jarred out of what we understand. That's the whole point of the Bible. That's why it's so thick and meaty and wonderful and it'll never get old for the rest of your life because it makes your brain go outside of what humans can understand. I can't understand everything in the Bible, but that's why I keep going back. It's like a book you read and you go, oh yeah, okay, I got the three principles on leadership, I'm good. I never have to go back to it because it was easy. But when it's not easy, I go back and I go back and I go back. Okay, another thing about letters, last thing about letters, I promise. Each time period has its own style. So these letters, three things, may lack details. You're gonna find there's, you're like, I, I don't understand. Tell me more. That's why study Bibles are awesome. That's why we're going through this study. I'll give you more insight because details are left out. It's a letter. Letters also seem simple. But they are actually, and these books of the Bible are super sophisticated. And it's all on purpose to give us a discovery, a world of discovery that makes the Bible new every morning. You also probably remember, uh, or you could go back and listen to the series by Sean Mutter, or the podcast on Life Church Mutter, the Mutter series. Mutter means to chew on, to have it in your mouth, scripture in your mouth, and chew on it day and night. The whole Bible. So I just told you about letters, then I told you about the three styles of writing. I know that was a lot. All of it, the whole Bible, is meditation literature. It is meant to be meditated on. It is not meant to be read front to back, close the book, never need it again. It is to be muttered. It is to be considered. So you'll see in this book, for example, that John is eating a scroll, like a scroll. Like I have a, I have a scroll tucked in this. This they, this is something that they put in. Um, should go like this. In Israel, Jew, Jewish people would have this outside their door and it would be actually angled when it's nailed up and behind it is a portion of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. It's a scroll. Okay, so this large scroll in Revelation, if you've read ahead, you already saw it. It says that John ate it. It also says that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth in Revelation. Now you can understand a little more why. Because it's important that we meditate, we mutter, we chew on it. It was like God was sticking this scroll of truth into John's mouth. He was to meditate. He was to, to uh, saturate on it and then share it. And Jesus was showing a sword out of his mouth that what you share, that your mouth, your tongue is powerful. Okay, so things to notice also in Revelation. Seven is a meaningful number for John. He's Jewish. All Jews would find seven to be very relevant, and he's woven it throughout the book. Okay, why is seven significant? And you might think you know. In fact, in the comments, which I can't see right this second, but I for sure will go back and look, you might say something like, 
uh, well, seven days of creation. You're right, but there's more. Seven is a symbol of completeness and perfection in the Tanuk, uh, due to creation and the seventh day, seven day Sabbath cycle. What is the Tanuk? Okay, so the Tanuk, the Hebrew Bible, is what that is, sometimes called the Mikra. It's canical, a canical connection. What is canical? It means it's a, adopted as inspired scripture that is truth. So the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh or the Mikra is considered the inspired scripture that is truth of all Hebrew scriptures. So these texts uh, are that I'm pulling from and that we learn and we got the Protestant Bible from. We got 39 books of the Protestant Bible from the Tanakh, from the Mikra, the Old Testament uh, collection. And so this is what the Tanakh says about the number seven. Number two, I said number one was the seven days of uh, creation. And on the seventh day, he rested. Sabbath, Jews are very clear on resting on the seventh day like no others. Uh, Noah took seven of each clean animal on the ark, Genesis 7-2. It wasn't two by two. It was seven of each clean animal. So that's where uh, I shared with my bright ladies that we, in the spiritual life coaching this week, we're talking about the major stories of the Bible. Noah would have taken... Uh, uh, little lizard dragon that would be in the type of animals on the ark or dinosaurs were not clean because he took seven of each clean animal uh, was a bat the smaller version of the flying dinosaurs possibly so there was a kind of dinosaurs on the, the ark but obviously if they were too big and he couldn't fit them he may just have bypassed doing uh, bringing those animals on. So that's a side note, but he took seven of each clean animal. That's Genesis 7-2, if you're taking notes. Pharaoh's dream, he had a dream of seven fat cows and seven lean cows. He, this predicted seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, Genesis 41. Again, seven being significant. And then lastly, and there's many more, but in King's 1 Kings uh, 4.35, the Shunammite woman's child sneezed seven times before opening his eyes when Elisha raised him from the dead. So seven, it's weaved throughout. So this is how to understand Revelation. What Revelation is not? Revelation is not a secret predictive code like the Da Vinci Code. Get that out of your head. Uh, in fact, you know, if TV shows are trying to say, oh, it's like this puzzle. No, God wasn't trying to trick us. Uh, there's not something we're not understanding. This is a book that John was writing letters to the church to tell them about things they'd already heard about in the Tanakh, in the Jewish or the Hebrew Bible. It's not secretive. There's not some weird code in here. So if you were hoping for the Da Vinci Code, Although I won't say you'd be disappointed because there's some really cool stuff we're going to notice. It really does feel a little like a puzzle. Uh, but you will see that it is not like the Da Vinci Code. Number two, what Revelation is not. Not something we can pinpoint the end times to a day and time when he will return. In fact, the Bible says no one will know. Uh, Revelation 16, 14 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. This is Jesus. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, that doesn't mean sleep in pajamas always. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, literal clothes, but to be naked in the Jewish context was to be shamed. So be alert. 
keep your shame away and basically be righteous and holy because you never know and you don't want to be exposed when you're living in shame, when you're living in sin is what that means. And then lastly, Revelation is not the... the is not saying that there's one time people will think it's the end times. Uh, <laughs> yes, right now we're thinking this feels a little like the end times or a lot like the end times compared to anything I've seen with this pandemic. It seems that way. But did you know since 0 AD, since the beginning of uh, time, AD, every generation has felt like they're in the end days. Everyone. In fact, there's research done on strong theologians who in every generation has said this is the end times. We right now uh, are feeling like it might be the end times. Well, it's obviously closer than it's ever been before. That's my husband's dad joke is, oh, it is the end times. We're closer to the end than ever before. But I know we're thinking more than that. Now, what I will tell you is that the New Testament expresses a tension between eminence and perspective. The time is near, yet the end is delayed, meaning the time is near and there are signs, but the end is delayed. Why is it delayed? Because Jesus has, God has mercy and grace and he wants, he wants people to turn. But the time is near because people are not turning. And even with the signs that they're getting, their heart their hearts actually become harder. They become hardened like Pharaoh's heart was more hardened through plagues. And that's one of the things you'll see throughout the book of Revelation is that while people are getting all the signs we're in the end times, and, and reality is a pandemic is like is pestilence. So more things are lining up right now with a pandemic than two years ago or Y2K when there's lots of computers and then there's war and famine in some countries. Things are beginning to look for sure more like the end times. And what you'll find in Revelation is it says when everything comes together and not just seven out of the eight signs are happening, but when eight out of the eight signs are happening, it means it's going to happen quick. It means it's going to happen real quick. It's not going to be, okay, it's the end times, all of those matched up. And now we have a thousand years to get ready. No, it's going to come very quick. So that's why Jesus said the time is near. Yet we know that he has delayed the end because he's looking for people to repent. But when, when they're just like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like before the flood, when God said, literally, you will not turn from your wicked ways. He did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He did destroy the earth in the flood. So the list we will go over of famine, war, disease, rebellion, uh, rebellion, rebellion against your parents, uh, full world government, uh, when it all happens, it will happen, the end will happen rapidly. Right now we know we have multiple uh, world uh, governments, so there's not one. However, I'm sure you've seen, uh, and, and I, Sean looked it up right away on Snopes, like does, uh, is Bill Gates really uh, planning to get a chip inside of people? Um, and here's the thing, before I ever heard about that, I told Sean, I said, in Israel, they, I mean, I saw this a month ago, probably, maybe not quite a month ago, three weeks ago. It said that in Israel, they were tracking people by their phone. And if people were not supposed to, were not where they were supposed to be, then the government could come and find them and arrest them or get them where they need to be. And I looked at Sean and I said, so if they realize most people have phones, but not a hundred percent of the people, 
why wouldn't they require the technology from a phone inside of our human body to track us? In China, they had drones that were, during this pandemic, that were chasing people, uh, were overhead. And if somebody wasn't wearing a mask or they were out of their home when they were not supposed to be, the drones with loudspeakers from the government were told, the, peop the drones were saying to people, return home, put on a mask. Definitely, there is more of a reason to get a chip under our skin, which many have wondered, is that the mark of the beast? For sure, there's more of a reason now to track who has corona, who does not have it, who... Um, needs to stay at home because they've been diagnosed. If we were to catch up with everyone on earth getting tested, and then it was determined if you have COVID-19, you stay home, so we're gonna track and make sure you're at home. The best way to do that is not your cell phone because you could leave your cell phone you know, at a store, at a grocery store. So instead, we're gonna put this chip under your skin. It makes the most sense right now. And then uh, I believe it is more true than just Snope saying it was not about Bill Gates saying this could be necessary, uh, this identification. Does that look like the end of the world? Yes. Again, we are closer than we've ever been, just out of logic. Uh, but let's get back to the study because this does give us signs of the end times. So what Revelation is, before we jump into chapter one, Revelation is a letter to seven churches who were living during the time of Emperor Domitian and his persecution from Rome to all Christians, to all Jews and Gentiles, Emperor Domitian was persecuting. He followed someone who also persecuted Christians. That's why John got exiled to an island. Uh, what it also is, Revelation is meaningful images right from the Old Testament. We can do our own detective work by going back to the Old, to the Old Testament and looking. So here's the historical context for the opening first chapter. John is exiled. It says, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must happen very soon. He made it clear by sending his angel to his servant, John, who then testified to everything that he saw concerning the word of God and the testimony about Jesus Christ. Okay, so John is exiled. What is exiling? It's forced relocation. He was on an island. Now, I shared in the Facebook uh, page, and I can always share pictures with anyone who requests them of the island of Patmos. And it's literally looks like the Greek Isles. It's beautiful. It is a small Greek island in um, the Aegean Sea. It is. Uh, it's still there, and there's 3,000 people in modern-day island of Patmos. The, the uh, Asia Minor is where he's sending the letters, which is modern-day Turkey. So it's the southwest part of Asia that's now modern-day Turkey. The churches were located on a major Roman road, and the letter would leave John on the island of Patmos, this one that we just started reading in, and it would arrive first at Ephesus, and the the mail courier would travel north and continue in the exact order in which the letters were dictated. So if you look on a map, which I can provide and I did provide, the map of first century uh, Asia Minor, and basically the letter courier would take it from John. He would follow this major Roman road. He would go in the exact order of the letters. That just proves this even more. I love it. So line by line, 
we just read the very first chapter, 1, 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must happen very soon. I want you to look at servants. I want you to underline it. I also want you to write out to the side bondservant, because a bondservant is more clearly, when you see in the Bible, they say slaves, or I'm a servant to God, I'm a slave to God. Really, bondservant is the original word that was used. And a good translation of bondservant uh, would have come from the servant. What it is, is uh, often indicates one who sells himself into slavery to another. But as this is archaic, few totally understand its force. The concept of a bondservant, there is force and power. It's you chose to be his bondservant. And the churches were choosing to be bondservants because they were being persecuted. They were being killed. They were being run out of Rome because they were bondservants to, to Jesus. All right, let's look at verse 2. Uh, he made it clear. Okay, I'm going to start again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must happen very soon. He made it clear by sending his angel to his servant, John. His angel would have been Jesus angel. There's angels in the Bible. And then there's when God is manifested through an angel and it's actually the angel of God. So there is a difference. And so it's God coming to give this revelation through an angel, through his angel, it says, so circle his angel, who then testified to everything that he saw. John testified to everything he saw concerning the word of God and the testimony about Jesus Christ. Okay. Prophecy. I want to, the word prophecy, prophecy, I want you to look at this. It says that he is to read it aloud. And he did. He asked in verse three, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy aloud and blessed are those who hear and obey the things written in it because the time is near. The time is near. Okay. Look further in verse four, from John to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from he who is and who was and who is still to come. Again, this is coming directly from God, he's saying. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to the one who loves us and has set us free from the sins at the cost of his own blood and has appointed us as a kingdom as priests serving his God and Father, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay, I want to go back to firstborn from among the dead. Because I read that and hopefully you underlined that or you are now because how's he the firstborn of the dead? The title firstborn of the dead for Jesus is of great theological importance, especially with Easter's coming up. The Greek word for the firstborn that John uses is prototokos, a word that literally refers to birth order, the first child born. This is a concept of great significance uh, in the Old Testament where the firstborn son inherited his father's place as head of the family, receiving the father's blessing and a double portion of the inheritance. That's in Deuteronomy 21:17. After the Passover in Egypt, back in Old Testament, when the death angel passed over, God told his people that every firstborn child was set aside as his own. Exodus 13:2 mark that down. And the nation of Israel as a whole was referred to as God's firstborn son. So what it was saying is not just the firstborn of a family, but that 
Israel, the nation of Israel, still today, the nation of Israel is considered God's firstborn son. We as a church, we give money to the Jewish, Messianic Jewish synagogue. We, it is a, it is a command that the Jews who were chosen be cared for. Then Jesus came and said the Gentiles, which just meant non-Jews. He came for the Gentiles too. But Calling Jesus the firstborn from among the dead is saying he is the firstborn like the Jews are the chosen people. Jesus is the firstborn, but he's the firstborn of God. Okay, I'm going to move on and tell you more. In referring to Jesus as the firstborn of the dead, John is drawing words and imagery from Psalms 89.1, which celebrates the kingship of David in his line with phrases like the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, and the idea that the Messiah's throne will be faithful, will be a faithful witness in the sky, calling Jesus firstborn, portrays him as the heir of David, exalted and lifted up as the representative of his people. Okay, Jewish people to this day, they honor and respect David and Jesus came and they thought Jesus was going to be the savior. This is Orthodox Jews. Jesus was going to be the savior because he came from the line of David. But they thought that Jesus was going to come and with military control, he was going to be the savior. Instead, Jesus came and he died on a cross and he was a lamb and he was meek and mild in so many ways. And that's why Orthodox Jews versus Messianic Jews are still waiting on the Messiah. They're still waiting on the firstborn. They do believe that Jesus came from the line of David, but they don't believe he is the Messiah, the Savior. That's an Orthodox Jew. A Messianic Jew says, he came, he's from the line of David, he rose again, we do believe he's the Messiah. Okay, uh, lastly, verse 1 through 12, or verse 12 in chapter 1. And I know I'm skipping over some of this, but hopefully you read the first chapter or you will. When John hears a voice, he hears one thing, but then he turns and he sees in his vision seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand was one like the Son of Man. Okay, I'm going to check the time. I'm going to go over this. This is a menorah. I got this when I was in Jerusalem. In fact, it says Jerusalem across it. It's now the uh, coat of arms of the modern state of Israel. But in 112, it says that he turned and saw a golden lampstand. But I want you to mark down that in Zechariah 4, he sees a lampstand. And it says in Zechariah 4, then the angel who was speaking with me returned and woke me up like a man who would be made to wake up from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see a gold lampstand with a cup at the top and seven lamps on it. And there are seven places to hold oil on the top of each of the lamps. There are two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the cup and on the other side, the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So John is actually referring, again, it's a letter to churches who know of Zechariah 4, and he is seeing a menorah. So a menorah is a, a lamp stand, basically where there's six on each side, but the center one, so there's seven total, the center one in John's vision was the son of man, was right here in the center. And that's where it says that his feet, he was dressed in a robe 
extending down to his feet. He wore a white golden, wide golden belt around his chest. His head and hair were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword extended out of his mouth. I want to talk about the fact he had seven stars in his right hand. What that is saying to us, and by the way, a menorah back that would have traveled with the children of Israel in the wilderness and then was put in the temple would have been, let me get the, you the exact, 1.6 meters or 5.3 feet tall. So a menorah, when he sees this, it's not like he's seeing something in his vision that was used to be small, like what's in my hand. Actually, the menorah that traveled with the temple and that sat in the temple was uh, five and a half feet tall, five feet three, five feet, three inches tall. So it was already kind of life-size. In fact, we saw a menorah in the center of the city of old Jerusalem when we were there. And it is massive. It's life-size. So when he's seeing this, it's just that instead of just these, these gold or bronze uh, candle sticks, it's that the center one, the seventh one was Jesus, which says, and he says in here, what I want to tell you, skip down to verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, another word for uh, angels would be messengers. They're the seven, it's representing the seven messengers to the churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I don't know which one got to get Jesus the center of the menorah as theirs. I would want to be in that church that's in the center of it all. But that's what John is seeing. Again, he's not seeing something like when we see that, we go, what does that mean? To the Jewish people, they go, oh yeah, that's a symbol of us. But what it's saying is that Jesus is the center of it all. And then it shows that from his mouth is a sword, meaning what he's about to say is going to pierce us. It's going to be important. And then he says, in my hands are seven angels. Now, I'm going to end with this for today, but don't, don't log off. Don't be done here because this is the good stuff. He's holding the stars in his right hand. He's saying those stars are the church. He's saying in the lampstand, he's the center of the church. He's saying the churches are an extension of him and that angels are messengers represented by stars in his hands. When people are worshiping stars, when people are worshiping angels, when people are thinking that angels are equal with God, with Jesus, with power, he had them in his hand. I couldn't think of a cooler way to start a book that has so much metaphor and has so much poetry and actually has so much narrative as starting off with the picture of something they knew, they physically knew of the menorah. And Jesus just saying, look, the churches are important. I've got messengers for them, but I'm in control of the angels and the messengers. I'm in control of the churches. I'm the center and the head of it. And I have a word to speak to you that is for the seven churches in Southwest Asia, but is for everyone for the rest of time. Bonus insight on this. And if you haven't yet sent any questions, or comments. Now I'm going to take some time to answer them. If you haven't already done that, do that now so that Casey can get those over to me. But I have some bonus insight and material uh, that goes beyond what we just talked about. And that is that there are no Bible characters except Jesus we are to imitate. We are not to imitate 
angels. We are not to look to the stars. We're not even to imitate King David, who's my favorite, or John. Uh, we're not to imitate. And a lot of people think that the Bible is full of people to imitate. We actually aren't to imitate them. That's why we see that it's a flawless bunch of people in the Bible. Because actually, uh, what these flawed people are there to do is show us their life and then us to see God's mercy and grace on their life. So we see ourselves in the, these flawed people and it all points back to the character of God. There, This has never been about one person, one saint, one priest, one prophet in the past or even in the present. Isaiah was not to be emulated. Elijah, Elisha, Noah. Noah comes out and he gets drunk. Uh, Adam and Eve are not to be imitated. They are to be looked at. And then we are to see the grace and the mercy of God through every Bible character. Thanks for joining me today. For more great content like this, check out Cheery Conversations, available on all podcast platforms. You can also go to SunnyHennessy.com to connect with me and find out all the things going on in my head at all times. See you next week.